0: So let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you so much for this new year. Thank you for a brand new study that I know is of you that we are beginning today. Thank you for every woman that you have brought our way. And I pray your richest blessing upon her and upon her family for the extra effort that she is making to be here, especially today in this rain and to learn more about you through your word, both written and living the Bible, the written word, and your son, the living word. I pray, Father, that as we commence our journey to see your son throughout the Old Testament scriptures in so many varied ways, that our hearts, like your two disciples on the road to Emmaus long ago, will burn within us. I do ask for spiritual heartburn for myself and for everyone here. And, Father, I ask that you would give each of us the capacity to feel a high level of expectation and joy in both old and new spiritual truths that we'll be learning. Because that is really a gift from you, the gift of passion for your word and for your son and for our relationship with you through him. That's that's a gift only you can give, the gift of passion. And not everybody has it. I have found so many Christians who don't really have that passion for your word and for you. So please give every one of us that particular gift. Um, and may we honestly, if we haven't learned to say this from our, from our hearts genuinely yet, I pray that this year and the years to come, we may learn to say what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 121, for me to live is Christ and even one day to die we know will be gain and now I ask that your word would have a sanctifying a deepening a purifying an emboldening humbling healing and reconciling effect here today and that your spirit would be our teacher and that your son alone <clears throat> would receive the glory and be exalted for we ask these things knowing that they are indeed in accordance with all that your son's name represents amen the entire bible the 39 books from genesis to malachi which we call the old testament and the 27 books from matthew to revelation that we call the new testament Um, is centered on Jesus Christ. Did you know that? The entire 66 books. The 66 individual books that make up our Bible contain, you know this, different categories of literature. We have poetry. We have hymns. We have apocalyptic literature. We have um, lots of prophecies. There are proverbs. There are sermons. There's a lot of history. There's uh, even specific architectural directions about um, a, te- a tabernacle in a temple. There's uh, letters, which we call epistles, etc. So lots of different categories of literature. Did you know that the 66 books were written in three different continents Africa, Asia, and Europe in three different languages Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of What? Aramaic, right. And the book was written over a period of 1,500 years, and that spanned about 40 generations. Furthermore, there were some 40 divinely inspired human authors that wrote those books, and they came from all different walks of life. You had kings and uh, political leaders, prime ministers like Daniel. You had uh, fishermen. And poets and shepherds, a military general Joshua, you had um, a king's cupbearer. Who was that? Nehemiah. 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 Um, there were there was a priest, Ezekiel, a tax collector, Matthew, um, a physician, Luke, and even a former Pharisee. All different walks of life, right? And yet, what is so amazing is that the Bible is one continuous progressive revelation about God's redemptive plan for man. And since it was Jesus, the eternal son of God, who accomplished that redemptive work, he is the central theme of the entire Bible, all 66 books. So it's sad, to me, it's sad how many Christians neglect The Old Testament, because of their failure to understand its relevance to their lives today or even to their Christian faith. Some even call the Old Testament non Christian. Of course, we know the Jewish people do, don't they? Non Christian. Some, even Christians, call it sub Christian. But it is the Old Testament that prepares our hearts and our minds for the New Testament. Now, of course, I don't think anybody in this room would disagree with me that the Old, that the New Testament is all about Christ, right? The New Testament is Christ centered. But many people fail to understand that the Old Testament is also Christ centered from beginning, and I'm talking about beginning, the creation in the beginning. To the very end, the Old Testament is also Christ-centered. It is foundational to understanding the New Testament. If we had Bibles that just began with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we wouldn't know, for one thing, we wouldn't know where we came from. We wouldn't know where we got these awful sin natures that we struggle with. We wouldn't know why the Jews were looking for a Messiah a king, we wouldn't know why Jesus needed to come to earth. And we would have no credentials by which to properly identify him, would we? How would we know who was the true Messiah? Um, we would be utterly confused if we didn't have the Old Testament. Plus, a huge percentage of the New Testament would be missing because so much of it is connected to the Old Testament. There's direct quotes, there's indirect quotes there's all kinds of allusions the new testament takes it for granted that you know the old testament and so this is why when the resurrected glorified lord jesus explained to two of his disciples on the road to emmaus resurrection sunday afternoon and later on he also explained to his apostles and all of his other followers who he is why he had to suffer, why he had to shed his sinless blood and die, he didn't begin, this is why he did not begin by talking about his Bethlehem birth. Nor did he give them a full explanation of his fantastic Sermon on the Mount. Nor did he even give them a dissertation about his many disagreements with the religious rulers. What did he do instead to teach them who he was you know, why he had to suffer and die, etc. He taught them the things concerning himself from the three major sections of the Old Testament scriptures, from the writings of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He used each of those three main categories of the Old Testament to explain who he is, why he came, the curse he came to bear, and the mercy and grace and forgiveness of sins that he came to give. Now, the Pentateuch, which the Hebrews call what? The Torah, right? The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, called the Pentateuch, because "Penta" in Greek is five. The writings of Moses prepares the way with all of its sacrifices and priests and offerings and the tabernacle, which later became the temple, The Pentateuch prepares the way to present the perfect priest. Was there ever a perfect priest, human priest? No. No. But it prepares the the way for the perfect priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand as the perfect mediator between God and man as the perfect sacrifice (laughs) for sin. Now, that's kind of ironic, right? The priest became the sacrifice, but that's Jesus the historic books of the old testament draw attention to the perfect king there's a lot of kings we read about in the history books of the old testament right was there ever a perfect king even david had his problems didn't he and solomon never a perfect king but There would be a perfect king who would come to rule his people and subdue his enemies. And that, of course, is Christ. And then the prophetic books of the Old Testament, they look forward to a perfect prophet. Was there ever a perfect prophet? No, there's some really good ones, but none of them were perfect. Why? Because we all inherit the Adamic sin nature. So they look forward to the perfect prophet who would represent and reveal the words and the plans and the warnings of the living God to man. So there's the three roles, you know, prophet, priest, and king of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, you could say this, and then this is difficult to think about, but you're going to get notes and the notes are going to be a lot more than what I'm going to have time to say today. So make sure you read them. They're coming at 12 noon. So they'll be there when you get home. (laughs) I did have all summer to get that one ready. Um, (laughs) But this is kind of hard to think about. So meditate on it and then read it and, and really because I'm just going to say it real fast, but they say that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You've heard that before, so you've chewed on that one, right? (laughs) It does take some thinking. Uh, The Old Testament centers on the pre-incarnate coming Christ. It anticipates the promised seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. The New Testament centers on the historic christ right any failure to see jesus in the old testament is not because he isn't there the angel of the lord had the many pre-incarnate appearances of the lord jesus christ he is there we are going to find him in all kinds of places that you didn't think he was going to be a lot of surprises I've already found some that have got me my heart burning (laughs) think about Philip Philip's encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch now that poor eunuch I mean he was reading Isaiah 53 good for him great place to read he was reading Isaiah 53 and yet he wasn't getting it he couldn't understand he couldn't understand it who is this talking about so the spirit of God brought Philip to the eunuch and Philip used that very same passage of the scripture, Isaiah 53, and it says to preach unto him, Jesus. And as soon as the Ethiopians saw Jesus in the Old Testament scripture, he immediately confessed him as the son of God. He got saved and was baptized. Finding Christ in the Old Testament is what opened up his eyes of faith. What did the apostles do when they, when they taught? What about Peter and John and all the other apostles and um, Stephen? Remember when we studied Stephen? He gave one sermon, <laughs> Acts chapter 7, and it was so powerful that they had to silence him and they stoned him to death. But what did all of them do to confirm that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world? The, the one they had been waiting for. What did they use? They used the Old Testament scriptures, didn't they? I mean, Stephen really did. That was amazing how well he knew. So they, they taught Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. Paul, the apostle Paul told those, told those who, and of course this was usually the Jews because he would go into the synagogue. He told those who misunderstood and who abused or misused the Old Testament that they were actually abusing Moses. Because they were reading the writings of Moses with a veil over their eyes. And he says that continues to this day. Well, that was back in his day. Does it continue yet to this day? Yes. Do the Jewish people and so many others too have veils over their eyes? So when they read the Old Testament, they don't see Christ. But as soon, like the eunuch, as soon as that veil is removed. And who is the veil? Christ christ himself they see and they and they can get saved that veil is removed in christ that's second corinthians 3 14 now i have to confess and i'm sure you're all going to agree with me on this one that the old testament does have some difficulties yes i heard that there are many obscure details and there's customs that we don't quite understand from an ancient culture. You know, that's why we have to research and do our, study, our, our homework here. But there's a lot of unfamiliar expressions. And boy, there are some really difficult names, aren't there? I was in the car with my um, grandchildren the other day. And I, you know, whenever I have a chance and they're in the car, I do Bible trivia, keep some quiet, you know. So I ask them all kinds of Bible questions. And I said, do any of you know what Joseph's Egyptian name was? Well, they didn't. (laughs) And I said, it was Zafnafpania. (laughs) My little five-year-old, she says, well, I can't say that. Mephibosheth and Cateleum or I mean there's some there's one name that's about 26 letters long I won't even try to say it but there's some strange names there's some long boring family trees don't you skip over those when you're reading (laughs) there's fierce judgments and there's a lot of violence And there's some tediously detailed laws that seem to have no application or relevance to our lives today. I mean, when you go to the supermarket, the grocery store, Food line, or wherever you go to get your groceries, Walmart, do you, well, maybe you do, I don't know, um, think, now which fish have scales, which meat had cloven hooves, or uh, chewed cud, I mean, do you... (laughs) How many of you are concerned about the proper way to sacrifice an, uh, an animal? Or are you concerned about how to pitch a huge tent in the middle of a desert? I said, well, maybe if your husband's in special forces, you've had a lesson on that. I don't know. But, I mean, there's a lot of things that we say, well, how does this apply to us today? A lot of cumbersome, cumbersome laws. Um, but all those strange genealogies. And all those uh, fierce battles and those laws contain significant rewards for the diligent student. You know, Proverbs 2 says that if we seek truth as silver and search for it as a hidden treasure. And where are hidden treasures in silver? Do you usually find those things laying on the surface level of the ground? (laughs) Where are they usually? Usually buried down in the ground um but if we search for those things we will not be disappointed because god is a rewarder of those who what diligently seek him and that's what i think i hope we're going to do in this study we're going to seek jesus below the surface level of the old testament scripture we're going to dig diligently and we're going to find him And uh, as I said, all those strange things about the Old Testament are going to be great rewards for us. The greatest reward of all will be strengthened faith. A solid understanding of Old Testament Christology immensely strengthens belief in Jesus as the promised Savior. In fact, it will absolutely remove any doubt if you have any doubt whatsoever. Now, remember the, I know I told you to turn to Luke 24. We'll get there eventually, all right? But do you remember the Lord's words when he was reprimanding the religious rulers in John 5, 39? He reprimanded them for searching the scriptures to try to find in them eternal life. You see, they thought that it was through their careful lifetime study of the scriptures and of course all they had at that time was the old testament so we're talking old testament here and they thought that it was by way of their meticulous adherence to the mosaic law which of course they thought was okay if they only did it externally you know legalistically not obeying it from their heart but they thought if they studied the scripture and they obeyed the laws they could earn eternal life and he's reprimanding them for that you see Bible study is not an end in itself the Bible does not give eternal life I had a Bible before I was saved it didn't give me by osmosis eternal life I actually had to open it up right to read it Uh, but it is a means to an end which is eternal life through the one it talks about from beginning to end eternal life through Jesus Christ and this is why he rebuked them. And he said, In them, in the scriptures, ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. me. What did he just say there? The Old Testament testifies of me. So we have proof for our Old Testament Christology study. And now when he made that statement, as I said, the New Testament hadn't even been written. Um, and then a few sentences later, he said to them, For if ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For he wrote of me. Who wrote of Jesus? Moses. Moses. Now, we're probably not going to get out of the writings of Moses this whole year. But Moses wrote of Christ. They studied the scripture to find the key to eternal life. But they missed what was right in front of them. The one right in front of them who they hated and they were jealous of him. He was the key to eternal life, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's so ironic. Hebrews 10, 7. Do you know what the Lord Jesus said right before he entered into Mary's womb in the incarnation? We have the words he spoke to the father right before he was incarnated. And they are found in Hebrews 10, 7, which is actually a quote from the Old Testament, from Psalm 40. He said to his father, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me, To do thy will, O God. You see, the pre-incarnate son of God was telling his father that he would do his will by accomplishing all that was promised he would do. Where? In the volume of the book. What book was he talking about? The Old Testament. It's when you open the pages of the New Testament that you learn how all the seemingly boring Old Testament genealogies come together in Jesus Christ. Why did we have all of them? Well, to show us the lineage of Jesus Christ and how he alone fulfills all of the messianic prophecies, how his once-for-all atonement work on the cross explains all of those centuries of blood sacrifices, and all of those offerings and the ceremonies and the feast days. I can't wait till we get to the feast days, but that'll be Leviticus chapter 23. The seven feast days are so exciting because they all center on Christ. And uh, it's when we come to the New Testament that we find out how sin can be completely cleansed and forgiven once for, you know, in the Old Testament was only covered, right? Covered, but not completely cleansed. Now we learn how it can be, and um, for those who believe on him. And none of this would be fully appreciated or even understood without the Old Testament. The Bible is all about the great story of Jesus. But that story, and I just went to an apologetic conference not too long ago, and the man actually said that Christianity started with the empty tomb. And that just didn't set right with me. I thought, that's not true. (laughs) Um, The the story of Jesus didn't begin with the resurrection. It didn't begin with the Bethlehem manger either. The story of Jesus, actually the gospel of Luke begins the story of Jesus a whole year earlier than the Bethlehem birth because uh, we read about the angel Gabriel coming to give a Uh, an announcement to an old priest named Zechariah that he and his barren post-menopausal wife Elizabeth were going to bear a son and they were to name him what John and he was to be the forerunner of the Messiah he was going to be the voice crying in the wilderness and um, he said that he would go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah Well, that's not even the beginning of the um, Bethlehem story then, because you have to say, well, where does that prophecy, where's that prophecy from? So last couple verses of the Old Testament, Malachi, um, verses five and six of chapter four, talk about one coming in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Well, that's not even the beginning of the story of Jesus, because then you say, well, who's Elijah? So then you have to go back even further in the Old Testament to read about Elijah. But that isn't even the beginning of the story of Jesus, because if you go to the um, genealogical record in uh, Luke, which is, gives us Christ's royal, I mean, his yeah, royal bloodline through his mother Mary, Then you you read that his genealogy actually goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God, he's called, with a little s for son. So you have to go all the way. The story of Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning of man himself in the creation account of Genesis. Hmm. But even the creation account of man in Genesis is not the beginning of the story of Jesus because then there's the gospel of John, right? And what did John say in John 1, 1? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then down to uh, verse 14, you read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we know that that word is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the, he was with God. He was God. He's the only member of the Trinity who became flesh. He tells us later on that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, Jesus is both the creator and the ultimate goal of all of history. And since the word already existed In the beginning, you see, it says in the beginning was the word. So the word preexisted the beginning. You get that? (laughs) Uh, So since he was already before the beginning, the story of Jesus precedes the beginning of even his creation work. You see, here's the bottom line. Here's the fact. He never had a beginning. So the story of Jesus never does have a beginning, does it? Can you wrap your mind around that one? I can't, but God is the self-existent, eternal God. Um we, we learn in Revelation 13:8 that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. I mean, this this plan was in God's mind before creation. Hmm. I once Upon a time, years ago, had an argument with a man. Uh, well, I've had a lot of those, but <laughs> <laughs> this one wasn't my husband. <laughs> and I was witnessing to him about Jesus, and he said, you know, he said, I'm going to go with the Chinese religions because they're the oldest. Christianity started about 2,000 years ago. And I went, oh, oh, no, 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 it didn't but it 's hard to tell somebody that you know Jesus existed eternally, etc, anyway, the Bible you know the Bible is full of stories if you 've been in Sunday school, grew up in Sunday school, you know all those stories right? You know about Jonah and the whale. sometimes we tell them the same stories over and over again don 't we? Um, Daniel and the lion's Den, uh, David and Goliath, Noah and the ark, all those stories that we learn about in Sunday school. But it is all too common to know those stories. And this is what I fear for our young people. They know all those stories by heart and yet miss the Bible story. You know what all those stories point to? Every one of them? Noah and the ark. Picture of Jesus and our ark of safety from judgment. Uh, Ruth and Boaz. All about our kinsman, redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of those stories points to Christ. We've got to remember to tell our young people that. Um, but they, miss, they can miss the Bible story, the progressively unfolding drama that is God's story, all about his work to redeem man from his rebellion against him, his disobedience, his guilt, and his ultimate damnation. Only divine revelation could maintain an ongoing drama that extends over hundreds of centuries, 1,500 centuries to write the book, That anticipated the end from the beginning, only divine revelation, only a divine source. God can orchestrate history itself so that his promises, his prophecies, his plot and his plans are all fulfilled and culminate in his ultimate purposes. We saw that with the study of Daniel in the times of the Gentiles and how he predicted, you know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome and then the revived Roman Empire. Well, he predicted all that, but then he had to orchestrate history so that it was actually fulfilled, you know, using even the evil of man to accomplish his purposes. That's that's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) That's why we know this book is supernatural one book written over 1500 years by some 40 different authors and it's all about one person that anyone has to admit is amazing it's impressive but you add to the fact add this to the fact of that that this same book makes hundreds of predictions and presents hundreds of prophetic pictures which we call types fuzzy pictures in the old testament that are types of the anti-type, which is Christ, which, you know, come to full. They're shadows, figures, prophetic types. Only God could give hundreds of predictions, hundreds of types about that one person, that one man, and then every one of them, at least concerning his first coming, because that man is coming twice, right? First time as a lamb, second time as a lion. Every single one of them concerning his first coming has been literally and precisely fulfilled. So you add that to the fact of how amazing it is, even without those, and what you have is a book that is not just impressive, it is totally supernatural. So even a painfully dry book like Leviticus, how many of you like reading Leviticus? <laughs> yay good i saw one over here two of you that's wonderful (laughs) i don't really like reading leviticus but even a book like that comes alive when we grasp the importance of what jesus explained to his two very very despondent disciples about himself from the old testament in the unrecorded emmaus road sermon now the most prominent quote of jesus concerning old testament christology is found in luke 24 here we go that was my introduction now we're getting into the lesson luke 24 27 and it's what i'm going to be using as our springboard text for this entire study okay luke 24 27 he said it says well actually luke wrote this It says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, expounded unto them, those two depressed disciples, in all the scriptures. What is that? The Old Testament. There was no New Testament yet. The things concerning himself. And then later on that day, look over at verse 44 and 45. This is when all of his apostles and disciples are together And he says to them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So it was Resurrection Sunday. It was resurrection Sunday afternoon. Two of the Lord's disciples, one we know was named Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other one. It may have been his wife because when they say their heart burned, they say heart singular. And also they seem to share the same home when they get to Emmaus. I don't know for sure, but we do know the name of one of them. But they had left. They were the Lord's followers, disciples, not apostles. They had left Jerusalem now that the double Sabbath was over. Friday was a high day Sabbath and Saturday was a regular Sabbath and you could only walk so far in the Sabbath. And uh, so as soon as it was Sunday and it wasn't Sabbath anymore, they could leave Jerusalem and they hightailed it out of there, resurrection Sunday. (laughs) And they're very despondent and they're going back to this little village about seven miles, seven or eight miles northwest of Jerusalem called Emmaus. Now they're, Extremely depressed, and they are discouraged, and they are in despair, and they are disappointed when they had absolutely no reason to be so. Absolutely no reason whatsoever. You see, they had already heard earlier that day reports from some of the women of their own company, women who had traveled with them as Jesus, you know, preached and did everything. They had heard from the women and And they had also heard from Peter and John that the Lord's tomb was empty. Additionally, they had already heard from the women who said they had seen angels and that the angels had told them that Jesus was alive from the dead. As he said, as he told you guys over and over and over third day, he is alive. So they heard the report from the women about the angels, and then they also heard the report from some of the women who had run into the resurrected Christ himself. We've seen him. He is alive from the dead. So their sadness, you see, is a product of their own disbelief, right? They had put their hopes in Jesus, but those hopes for them were shattered at the cross. And although they still loved him, Their current path was leading them away from the cross, away from the holy city, away from the empty tomb, right? They had their backs to those things. And apparently they're returning to their former lives in Emmaus. Now, as they walk, they are discussing with each other. They're discussing Jesus. And they're discussing the events of the past week, the Passion Week, and particularly the events of the past three days, when Jesus himself, the resurrected, glorified Jesus himself, appeared to them. He drew near and he went with them. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now, this was his fourth post-resurrection appearance. There were a total of 11 times he appeared to people. In his resurrected body. This is the fourth one. And what is interesting is that it is the one that ha- takes up the most space. There are 19 verses dedicated to this post-resurrection appearance of Christ. So this is a, that tells us right then and there. It's an important one. Now the disciples didn't recognize him. He either changed his appearance so that they didn't recognize him. Or it says, Mark tells us that their eyes were Holden. So they had, uh, he, he did something to their eyes, so they didn't recognize him. I don't know how that happened, but they didn't know who he was, okay? And um, why did he do this? Well, likely he did this so that his conversation with them would flow more freely. And the spiritual influence of his words would not take second place to his physical appearance, you see, if, if they knew who he was, do you think they'd really be listening to his words? <laughs> no, they'd be so excited their emotions would be, they just wouldn't listen. Um, and they had gotten too too familiar, too comfortable with his physical appearance, and things were going to be changing, weren't they? He, he was going to teach them to listen more than, you know, hang on, on me physically. Well, even after being joined by their unrecognized companion these two disciples keep talking about uh jesus and every you know they're trying to make sense out of everything that had just happened during the passion week but they're unable to arrive at a satisfactory explanation for why the one they truly had believed was the messiah had been crucified i mean he had power why did he let them arrest him why was he crucified when the, the Old Testament says, Cursed is every man that hangeth from a tree. how did they, they couldn't figure that out. So he, God obviously cursed him. He cannot be our Messiah. And they're trying to put this all together and they're utterly devastated. And so the Lord asks them what they are talking about and why they are so sad. Verse 17. Now, why did he ask them this? Is it because he didn't know what they were talking about and why they're so sad? No, it's not so that he, it's not because he needed to know, but he was trying to get them to, remember, he's a master of asking questions, to draw people out. So he's trying to get them to express their thoughts to him so that he could then enter into the conversation and transform their disappointment to utter delight. How do you transform someone's disappointment, discouragement, despair, depression to utter burning heart delight? How do you do that? You do it the way Jesus did it, with doctrine from the scripture. Disappointment to delight by doctrine, by teaching. You know, like Mary Magdalene, who had been weeping her heart out at the empty tomb even talking to the resurrected Jesus thinking he was the gardener and she's still in total despair and like these two despondent disciples on the Emmaus road and like all the other disciples and apostles who are frightened and despairing gathered together in the upper room do we not often are we not often despondent and frightened or disappointed when we have every reason to be rejoicing Isn't that the case? How many of us were a little bit worried about Irma hitting us? Well, you know, we didn't really need to be, did we? (laughs) A little rain is good. Um, And I do pray for the people in Florida. And, oh, what a mess, what a mess, down in Houston. Hmm. But we are often despondent when we don't have to be. Fortunately, the Lord knows our tendency to have weak faith and heavy hearts in the midst of difficult circumstances. And that's why, of course, he has sent us the comforter. But this, with Mary and the apostles in the upper room and the Emmaus Road disciples, this is before he sent the comforter, which was on the day of Pentecost, right? So they don't have the abiding comforter, the Holy Spirit within them, so he himself comes alongside of them. That's what Paracletos, you know, the the Holy Spirit, that's his name, come alongside of. He comes alongside of them to comfort them. Now, the very idea that anyone coming out of the city of Jerusalem on that particular day would not know that they were talking about uh, Jesus of Nazareth and what had happened to him to these two was unthinkable. This guy's really naive or he's had his head in the sand or he's ignorant. (laughs) They think he's ignorant. (laughs) Um, So Cleopas (laughs) Cleopas actually says, are you the only one in Jerusalem who's still ignorant of what's been going on there? You know what that tells us? That tells us that all that happened to Jesus wasn't done in a dark corner somewhere. It was publicly known. And he said, how can anyone not know what had happened there? The past, especially the, the uh, past three days. Well, then continuing to draw them out, he responds by asking, what things things that's in verse 19 and again he's wanting them to talk and talk they did (laughs) and the more they talked the more they showed that they were the ignorant ones the more they talked the more they indicted themselves for their lack of faith in the face of so much evidence they told him that they were talking about jesus of nazareth which was a prophet this is verse 19 Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. That's their summary of his life. Okay, right there. They believed that Jesus was a prophet. After all, that was obvious. Why? Because of his mighty miracles, his mighty deeds, and his mighty words. We know he was a prophet of God. And they knew he was favored by God and by the common people. But do you notice what is so noticeably missing in what they said about him? What is missing? Right? Nothing is said about his deity at all or about what he had just done on the cross. His atonement work for sin. They referred to him as Jesus of Nazareth and a prophet, but nothing further. And they spoke of him in the past tense didn't they? He was a prophet. He's gone now. And then they talked about how the chief priests and the rulers of Israel had delivered him to the Romans, you know, to be condemned to death and to be crucified. And then they mentioned their disappointment. They said, you know, all this happened. You know how many times he told them that he was going to be arrested and scourged and all that. He told them ahead of time, all that. And yet they're, they're so disappointed. Look at what they say in verse 21. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Here's a problem. They had only looked to Jesus as a prophet like unto Moses. They had trusted him to deliver them, to deliver Israel from her oppression under Rome right? Just like Moses delivered Israel from Egypt. So that's what they were looking for, physical deliverance. Now they could have walked to Emmaus and back 5,000 times and discussed the subject of Jesus on every single trip. And they never ever would have arrived at a satisfactory answer to their dilemma concerning his crucifixion based on their preconceived ideas about the promised seed of the woman, the Savior, the Messiah. You see, their problem was that they didn't believe all that the prophets had written about the Messiah. All they had ever been taught from the Old Testament concerning the Messiah centered on his power and his glory, but never on his rejection And his suffering and his death. They didn't know that he was to be the suffering servant before a glorious king. Like I said earlier, they didn't know he was to be a lamb before the lion from the tribe of Judah. You see, these two, they thought that they had Jesus all figured out. When the fact was that he had accomplished everything that the scripture foretold that the messiah would accomplish and yet they completely missed putting it all together don't we tend to do the same thing sometimes don't we get disappointed and discouraged when the lord doesn't do what we expect him to do don't we tend to think that we have jesus all figured out sometimes Um, When actually what we have really done subconsciously is to create a Jesus who better fits our criteria. You know, a Jesus in whom we can be comfortable. Are we not inclined to mold him into someone who desires exactly what we desire? And who winks at that sin and doesn't really take that one seriously, you know, or condemns what we condemn? Don't we want to mold him into what we want him to be? Is the world not full of people, literally, who have all kinds of false assumptions and preconceptions about Jesus? If you don't think so, just go out there and ask people, what do you think of Jesus? And you'll get all kinds of ideas. Some people think of him as merely a progressive revolutionary, you know, an, ag- an agent of change in the social and religious system of his day. A revolutionary. A revolutionary. Others have him all boxed in as merely a good man. A really good man who went around preaching love. Love everyone. Love even your enemies. Bless them that persecute you. You know, he's just, Jesus is all about love. He's a very, very good man. Probably the best man this world has ever seen. But I've got news for them. How could he be a good man when he claimed to be God? And he wasn't. They say he wasn't. He was just a good man. Well, good men don't claim to be God. Otherwise, they're liars, right? And a liar is not a good man. You get the logic there? Um, There's an unbelievable amount of liberty taken when it comes to defining who Jesus is and what he taught. And what he accomplished in his life. However, there is only one place to look and see. And truly understand who Jesus is. And what his coming to earth was all about. And it is the place that the Lord himself took the Emmaus disciples. To the scripture. To the word of God. That's why we spent so many years discussing the life of Jesus. Right? On earth. To get to know the real Jesus. Not the false Jesus that the world proclaims. Well the disciples who walked with the Lord Sunday afternoon they desperately needed a fresh understanding of the scripture and that was what he was about to give them they had now you know they had spent their lives studying the torah they had uh, uh, under the rabbis and they had spent their whole lives listening to the scriptures being read in their local synagogue and in the temple but like so many preachers today the spiritual leaders of Israel were teaching their people, they were not teaching their people, I should say, the whole picture, the whole counsel of, of Scripture. They weren't teaching their people the whole picture of the Messiah. And why is that? Well, because they didn't really have the whole picture of the Messiah themselves. They were blind to the suffering Messiah. In Luke 24, 21, The two go on to say to their yet unknown traveling companion, they say this. Now, don't you feel sorry for these guys? (laughs) They say, and beside all this, all this wonderful news we got about an empty tomb and about angels and about the women seeing the resurrected Christ. And beside all this, today is the third day. (laughs) Why are they talking about a third day? How many times has he told them that he had he told them? And on the third day, he would write. Now, they just had selective hearing, I think, like so many people, selective hearing. I don't know what they did with that third day business, but they always put it out of their minds and thought, well, maybe he's talking in a parable or something about the great resurrection at the end of time. They just didn't get it. And so they're saying, and today's the third day since these things were done. Um, their own words incriminate them, don't they? If he had talked about a third day so much and then you got a report of all these amazing things, don't you think you would have hung around in Jerusalem just a little bit longer? I don't get this. I don't get why they're leaving um, unless they're afraid because now that people could leave and the religious rulers were saying if you find any followers of Jesus, arrest them. So maybe that's why. But listen to what else they said. Um, and this is in verses 22 to 24 they say "Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished which were early at the sepulcher and when they found not his body they came you know they came to us saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said he was alive and certain of them which were with us that's Peter and John they also went to the sepulcher and found it even, you know, even so as the women had said, they found it empty too. But him they saw not. Okay, so the two men didn't see the resurrected Christ, so the women are just being silly women, you know, telling us stories because they really wish it was true. That's probably what they're thinking because we know that's what the other apo- the apostles were thinking. You know, they had this belief, and I don't know if the Jews still do, but they, they thought that after the, the, the uh, soul of a deceased person would hang around for three days, but after the third day, depart. So they, they might be thinking, well, it's the third day. Now even his, his soul is gone, and now his body is missing too, <laughs> you know. So they're just all in despair, um, and they're leaving. They're sadly leaving Jerusalem. And, of course, I can make fun of them because there is a great advantage with hindsight, right? (laughs) Well, the unexpected next words must have just floored these two. Here they think they're traveling with this really nice guy, you know, kind of quiet, kind of naive, kind of ignorant. And uh, he's just asking all these dumb questions like he should know what was happening. And all of a sudden he says, thou fool's. Can't you just picture their reaction? Whoa, where did that come from? And yet what he says is with such a tone and the words have such authority that we don't hear another peep out of them until they tell us they have heartburn. (laughs) He says, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now, I have to say this. The word fools that he uses here is not raka, like you read in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a bad, it's not a negative word putting their characters down, okay? And it's not moros, from which we get moron. He's not calling them morons. (laughs) It's a Greek word, "aneotos," which really talks about their lack of understanding and perception, it refers to one who does not apply their mind to the situation. That's exactly what they were doing. So he says, you're fools, and you're slow of heart. There's absolutely no contempt implied in his, in his word there, no criticism of their character, their persons. So I want you to understand that. And notice, too, that his reprimand of them is not about their failure to believe the second-hand report of the uh, women, you know through the angels he doesn't reprimand them about not believing the women um, what does he reprimand them about he reprimands them about being slow to believe all the scripture. If they had genuinely heard and genuinely meditated on what God's prophets had been inspired to write, if they did not rely on what their hypocritical spiritual leaders had taught, but if they themselves had examined the scriptures in light of what Jesus had been trying to tell them when he was with them, they could have come to the conclusion That the promised seed of the woman, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, would indeed suffer. What was going to happen to the seed of the woman? His heel was going to be bruised by the seed of the serpent. That talks about suffering, right? It wouldn't be fatal because a heel, you know, is not his head being crushed. Satan was crushed, totally defeated. But it does talk about suffering. And that's just the first of many prophecies throughout the Old Testament that talked about the suffering that would, you know, be the uh, Savior. I mean, all the sacrifices of the lambs, the Passover lamb, Isaac and Abraham, all of that, so much pointed to a suffering Messiah. First, you know, first the lamb, then the lion. His crucifixion and his death did not negate his messianic credentials. They confirmed his messianic credentials. And this is why he told them, ought not Christ, the anointed one, to have suffered these things and to then enter into his glory? Ought not means what? It's mandatory. Mandatory that the true Christ would suffer. The sequence that is presented in the messianic prophecies and types of scripture all indicate that he would suffer first. I mean, he would be a lamb led to the slaughter, right? Before he would divide the spoil as a conqueror. We learned in Daniel that first he would be cut off. In the great 70 weeks prophecy, he would be cut off. And then afterward, he would establish his kingdom. The fact is, he would not be the savior if he had not been the first, the suffering servant. Well, it was at this point in the narrative, I'm almost done, that the Lord launched into what was undoubtedly the greatest Bible conference ever (laughs) held on earth. That's why I would have loved to have heard it. I mean, can you imagine? The living word is expounding on the living word. How could that not be piercing? Oh, I would have. No wonder their hearts are on fire afterwards, but he... um, he says in verse 27, that Luke tells us, he began at Moses, he went through all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, once the Lord started talking, um, the journey, I'm sure, went far too quickly and they reached their destination before they even wanted to. They may even have slowed their pace, these two disciples, so that they could hear their wise traveling companions every word. And yet before they knew it, they had reached their home there in Emmaus, and they didn't want to be parted from their yet unknown traveling companion. He had won their deep interest (laughs) and affection and respect, even though he called them fools, right? Um, And they wanted more of his teaching. They did not know yet who he was, but they did know their hearts were on fire and a fresh hope was quickly replacing their despair and their disappointment. His words were opening up to them a brand new comprehension of the scripture that they had never seen before. That veil was coming off, wasn't it? And everything he said to them, they couldn't argue with because it was straight from the scriptures. Did he know the scriptures? (laughs) I think he had the whole thing memorized because he wrote the whole thing. And it was now completely making sense. Light was beginning to dawn, even though the sun was going down. And the two just could not let this stranger vanish from them into the night because they might never see him again. And so they they wanted to hear more. They wanted to hear more. So they constrained him, verse 29, to abide with them. You know, the more we receive the word of God, the more we will desire fellowship with the God of the word, right? And they still don't know who it is. Well, he never, this is a truth. Remember this truth. He will never, ever, ever turn down a request for more spiritual light, for more wisdom from his word nor will he ever turn down a request for more fellowship with him. So he does. He goes in to tarry with them a little bit longer. And I imagine he continued while the meal was being prepared. He continued to expound on them about himself from the Old Testament. Then when the meal was ready, he undertook the office of the master of the meal, because I don't know if they asked him, but he took up the bread And he broke it. Well, he blessed it first. And then he broke it, and he gave them each a piece. And then I don't know what it was that he did. Maybe it was so familiar, the blessing, his tone, the way he broke the bread, the way he gave them the bread. Or maybe when he extended his hands to give them the piece of bread, his robe sleeve, came up, and they saw something they hadn't seen when they were walking with him. What would that be? Roman nail prints in his wrists. I don't know what it was, but the minute he extended the bread of life to them, the bread of life extended the bread of life, who had been teaching on the bread of life, (laughs) instantly he was known. And the same moment they knew who he was, what happened? He vanished. He vanished from their sight. Wow, and they looked at each other and they said, verse 32, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scripture? You see, they're expressing to each other the feeling of warmth and utter joy, unspeakable that pierced their innermost being as they had listened to to the living word, reveal himself from the living word. As I said, what could be more <laughs> piercing? They were absolutely ecstatic. You see how you go from disappointment to delight? From the doctrine of the word. Not it wasn't from seeing him. It was what he taught them that made their hearts burn. And so they're so ecstatic. They have new energy, joy unspeakable. What do they do? They rise up that same hour. Now, the sun has already gone down. It's Dangerous to travel at night. They have to go back another two hours. They don't care. They probably ran all the way. (laughs) Why did they want to go back to Jerusalem? Where did they want to head to? The upper room and share the news with the rest of the followers of Christ. You see, that's a definite, that's the best evidence that a person has truly, truly met the living Savior is when you cannot wait to share him With others. And they certainly had that. So now, now they're hurrying toward the holy city. They're hurrying toward the cross where their atonement for sin had been accomplished. And they're going back toward the empty tomb. Isn't that wonderful? Man is never so wise when he journeys toward those things and never so foolish when he travels away from them. Well, as we now launch into this who knows how long study of old testament christology one thing i can tell you is going to take us a lot more than two hours (laughs) i've already wasted one right spent one um but one thing that's critical is that we begin our search for him with the absolute assurance that he is there okay don't have in your mind that he isn't there he is there if a person has a view that the Old Testament is just, you know, an account of Israel's history, as for the Jews. This is what my dad told me. He said, oh, that, it's just for the Jews. It's boring, and it's for them, and it's outdated. And Jesus was for the Jews, which is ironic, isn't it, because they don't accept him. Um, but Jesus is for the Jews. Socrates is for us Greeks. Said, dad, what has Socrates ever done for you? <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, if you have the idea that it's just an outdated book, you know it's not a, it's sub-Christian, then then you won't find anything. But if we take the Lord's own words seriously, we're going to open this Old Testament with sure knowledge that it is filled with Him. And uh, my prayer is that we will all get spiritual heartburn. Now I get a lot of physical heartburn. I do. I have to take a acid reducer almost every day. <clears throat> should control my diet better but um, I don't like physical heartburn but I love it when I get spiritual heartburn and that's my prayer for all of us that we will this year and the years to come however long this takes us uh, the rest of my life (laughs) um, that we will have we will say to didn't our hearts burn within us and I hope we can say that every week starting next time because we're going to look we're going to start at the creation account and I think you'll be even surprised with that let's pray. Father, thank you for the hunger of your women. Thank you for the truth of your word, the whole word, from Genesis to Revelation, how it is all centered on Christ, who is the Lord, who is the Messiah, King, Savior, promised seed of the woman. He is the lamb. He is the lion. He is everything. He is everything, and it's to him we owe everything. Father, thank you for uh, all that you're going to do. We anticipate it greatly what you're going to teach us by your spirit i pray again your blessing on every woman here keep her um, safe from harm and uh, protect her and her family from the evil one and all the evil influences of this world and may we be salt and light to everyone we come in contact with until we meet again for we pray in the blessed name of jesus amen